Um, quick bio, uh, Peter wanted me to introduce myself, because uh, some of you may not really know me all that well. So my name's Scott, and I'm married to Jess, she's not in the congregation at the moment. We have a lovely, almost two-year-old daughter, Madeline. And we've been coming to Mary Creek now for about 15 or 16 months, so it's been great to, um, I guess, become a part of the church community here. Um, I'm also a social worker, so I work with um, in community mental health outreach. And I'm also studying at Ridley, so that's probably the main sort of connection between uh, me and this here right now this morning. Um, and Pete's been uh, really great in encouraging people and encouraging me to exercise my gift uh, and my, I guess, desire to, to share God's word with others and to use what um, I guess has been given to me. This is an object lesson, I suppose, of the... Uh, of the of the parable this morning, but to use what I've been given um, and to share it with others. So I thank Peter anyway for um, uh, being so encouraging in that. So just adjusting the microphone. So for those of you who may not know me all that well, I really enjoy uh, watching films. And over the Christmas period, Jess and I decided we'd watch uh, Schindler's List. So if you've seen the front of the, um, the bulletin there, you'll see, um, you'll see Liam Neeson's face. He plays the title character, Oscar Schindler. And for those of you who have seen the film, I'm sure many of you have, it concerns um, the moral translation of the character Oscar Schindler. Now, at the beginning of the film, he is a rather unscrupulous character. And he's quite willing to use people for his own ends um, and, and to get ahead by whatever means he can. Um, and he's a German businessman living in Poland during the Second World War. And he employs Jews in his factory because they're very cheap. Um, and this is also at the height of the Holocaust as well. Uh, but he's not terribly concerned about that, at least at the beginning of the film. However, partway through, there's a very arresting scene when he's riding on horseback and he's on a bluff and he's overlooking the town of Krakow. And the Jews of the town are being hurled out into the street by uh, the local SS. And some of them are being killed, others are being sort of rounded up and herded off to camps. And he, you can see he's, he's sort of transfixed, he's horrified and he's transfixed by what he's witnessing. And it's from that point that he realises that something has to be done, that as a wealthy industrialist, uh, a man of uh, means, with resources and wealth, he has to do something. And it grows, this compulsion uh, during the rest of the film grows, and he realises that because of what he has, he has a special, perhaps, responsibility, greater than others, to do what he can to save those around him. And by the end of the film, and the shot... Uh, the, the screenshot on the front of your bulletin is actually taken from the end of the film. He is not so concerned with how much money he has um, spent uh, in, trying to, in trying to help those around him. All he's concerned with is how many people he's managed to save. He seems to embody this basic moral principle that those who have much, who have been blessed with much, whether money or power or circumstances, whatever it might have been, have a special duty to pursue righteousness and to labour for justice and goodness in this world. 
And I think such a principle actually is also embodied and reflected in our parable this morning, in our teaching from Christ in Luke chapter 12. And he offers up this parable as a way of showing us the difference between, uh, between true Christianity, true servanthood, and a kind of empty claim to Christianity, an empty claim to religion that is a matter of mere words and not filled with the righteousness of God. It's also something crucial to the Christian life, indispensable to true servanthood. And it's something that we see Christ preach again and again, not just in parables, but in, in all sorts of forms and one that he embodied himself. I think in many ways this text this morning ties in very, very well with what's been preached um, throughout this month. I mean, we heard Peter preach on the, uh, the tree, the good and bad fruit. We heard Kieran a couple of weeks ago preach on um, the, the, the two types of builders, the one who built on a, a good foundation, the other one who built on a foundation of sand, um, pointing to or corresponding to um, merely hearing the word and actually doing the word. And here we see Jesus make a similar point. Again, as I said, it's the difference between a Christianity that is full and genuine and authentic and one that is empty. It's the difference between a person who recognises the deep value of what they've been given and the demands that are placed upon them as a result and the one who fails to take heed of those responsibilities whether it's through deliberate choice or through ignorance. It's the difference between a full discipleship, service before God and before others, and being a, merely, uh, being a mere consumer sorry, of religion. So that's sort of the passage in a nutshell. And if I can encourage you to take away anything today, I encourage you to take away that. Now, it actually continues the teaching that Jesus began um, a few verses earlier. And so we have here in, um, uh, in this little part of uh, Luke 12, two, two parables that, uh, that constitute basically the same message. Two truths about what it means to be, uh, to be vigilant, morally and spiritually vigilant in the, absence of, uh, in the absence of the master. And so I think to offer up this teaching twice like this, is to suggest something of, of, of great importance, of supreme importance. Now, I was studying for this, um, uh, for this sermon. You know, I consult the commentaries, as, as one generally does, to see what others uh, sort of say on a passage like this. Because I don't know about you, but I often find it difficult to work out sometimes who Jesus is actually referring to in some of his parables. It can be a little bit cryptic at times. Um, but reading through, it seems that, for one thing, Jesus is referring quite specifically the, to the church here. And it's not to say that um, uh, there's nothing in there for, for people beyond the church, but I think primarily he's talking about the company of believers here. He's talking about the head servant feeding other servants, and that suggests um, people who are already within God's estate, within God's house. The other question, too, is who is the, who is the head servant? Um, now, I think, again, the accent is on, um, is on leaders, church leaders. 
but I also think that for various reasons, this is something that can be applied widely to all of us. So we can't uh, look at a passage like this and, and, and think that it doesn't have anything to say to us. You know, we can't get off the hook that easily. Even if, it, even if it is speaking primarily to church leaders, to those who are called to be ministers in God's house, I think it's something that ch should challenge at least all of us. I mean, for one thing, in some sense, of course, we're all priests and ministers in God's house. Whether we're up here, whether we uh, hold a position like Peter's, we all have that responsibility to, to be ministers to each other. And for another thing we heard read in verse 48, Jesus actually doesn't make a distinction there in that, in that climactic teaching. From those who've been given much, much will be asked. And he doesn't make a distinction between leaders and laity. He simply lays that teaching out. And I think, again, it's something that should speak to all of us in some way. So Jesus begins by talking about the good servant. He lays out, I, I guess, two fundamental choices, two fundamental types of servant. And he begins in verse 42 with the good servant. So how does he characterise the good servant? So firstly, he says that the servant is wise and is faithful. And it was interesting, it made me think at least about our concept of wisdom, how we define wisdom, how we, how we see wisdom. Um, some people might see it as a certain shrewdness in life, a, a, a prudential attitude that allows them to succeed in whatever field they might be in. Um, other people might, might see it almost in, um, in a, a zen-like sense. You know, we, we, we tend to, at least as a culture, we tend to gravitate towards, uh, I guess, eastern forms of spirituality and the idea that we can empty ourselves of desire and, uh, and of anxiety. That, that in itself may be seen as a kind of wisdom. But note what Jesus says here. According to him, wisdom, the wise servant, is one who obeys the master's will. So it's obedience to the master's will that is a, is a sign of true wisdom. Now, and look, there may be um, cert certainly elements of truth to those other conceptions. It's quite different to what Jesus is presenting to us here. Wisdom, at least Christian wisdom, is conformity to the plans of someone greater. It's conformity to the plans and the purposes and the agenda of the master. Because it's true, I think, and it's something we need to remember, that God, the master, doesn't fit into our lives. Quite the opposite. It's his life into which we are meant to fit and to whose life and purposes we are meant to conform. Is that how we live our lives today? Do we conform ourselves to the master's purposes and plans? Does he lie at the centre of our lives, informing and shaping every, every domain, every arena? Or is he sort of bolted onto the end of our lives, tacked onto the end, as it were? Something for us to ponder anyway. In any case, I think we need to recognise that God, the Master, is the first and the final context of all of our actions. And that is the true measure of wisdom and that, that is the true measure of discipleship. 
But if you notice, Jesus doesn't speak just about the wise servant. He speaks about the faithful servant as well. And I think it makes sense too because he he does make mention of the master's ongoing absence. And so the servant is, is called to consistent vigilance, to constant daily faithfulness. And so it's, a, it's a fidelity, I suppose, that Jesus is looking for in a true servant. Not a, a, a fitful or an intermittent kind of obedience, but one that is daily and regular and constant. A consistent willingness to submit all of life's affairs to him. Now, as I said at the beginning, I actually work in the field of, of um, mental health outreach. And I have one particular client who struggles with chronic schizophrenia. So he hears... Um, voices. He, he struggles sometimes with delusional thoughts as well. Uh, and that comes, that comes with a whole host of other secondary, um, uh, secondary issues. So he struggles with anxiety and depression. And he's chronically unwell. But he engages in um, volunteer work about four times a week. And this is someone who has battled with this quite severe illness for probably 30 years. Uh, and yet he commits himself every single week to these different forms of volunteer work. He doesn't have that much to offer. He hasn't worked for many, many years simply because he can't. Uh, And yet he commits himself to this sort of work because of what he recognises, the value in it. And I I sat down with him once and asked him about it, how he managed to keep pushing himself like this. Um, And the essence of his response was that he knew that it was good, not just for him, but for those around him to be able to contribute to their lives in this way. And it struck me and it it got me thinking, I guess, about the kind of faithfulness that we are meant to exhibit. And I think this client of mine embodies that sort of faithfulness. Now, obviously, we're not in that sort of position, but the the, the struggles that he goes through, the, the undulating emotions, the different feelings and the experiences that he wrestles with, they don't stop him from committing himself week by week to what he sees as good and as right. They don't stop him from giving of himself, giving of his time and his resources and his labour. It's the kind of faithfulness that endures through all circumstances and seeks to order things around Christ's will. The idea there is, is, I think, the same, an ongoing commitment to something beyond oneself, in this case the purposes of Christ which transcends anything that we may feel or experience. Of course we're going to go through times where it's, where it's likely to be difficult, but Christ calls us to something more than that. We're called to be like the faithful servant. We're called to be, in some sense, like my client, concerning himself with something greater. And look at how... Jesus characterises the servant's wisdom and faithfulness. How is it evidenced? In a really sort of simple way, by feeding other servants. So obedience to Christ and service to others can't be separated. As we go up, as we draw near to God, as we draw near to Christ, we inevitably, invariably go out out to others, out to other believers, other servants to nourish and to feed them. It's worth, I think, thinking about the position of a servant, particularly in the ancient world. So here she, in all likelihood, did not own terribly much and certainly didn't own the things 
that are being referred to here in this parable. They were all the masters. The master owned those things. The servant simply held them in trust to do with as the master pleased. So I think in the same way we're encouraged, maybe even called to think of what we have, whether it's material or spiritual resources, as something we hold in trust. We're stewards of of what is ultimately owned by someone greater. And I think if we're trying to do anything else but Christ's will with what we have, then we're guilty, perhaps, of usurping God's place and God's ownership over those things, including our very own lives. I'm not sure if uh, you've seen the third film in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King. Um, I've not actually read the book, so I don't know how well it corresponds to, to the book, but there's, uh, there's a sequence in The Return of the King, and it concerns the steward of Gondor. Um, and he's, he's holding the throne. He's a placeholder for the real king of Gondor, um, who eventually returns. Um, but he has that privilege over the people of Gondor, not for his own sake, obviously. It's for the sake of the people, to provide that continuity, to provide that stability. Um, as I said, he's simply a steward, and that's what he's called in the film. But for those of you who have seen the film, um, you'll remember that he doesn't act that way. He acts with arrogance. Um, He doesn't act on behalf of the people. He acts on behalf of himself and for his own advantage and for his own ends. He abuses his position and he fails to use it for the betterment and the security of the people. In fact, I think at one point, his actions actually lead to the insecurity of the people. And so there's something similar going on here in this parable. The, The wicked servant is guilty of usurping God's position. He's guilty of using uh, the master's things for his own ends. And of course, look, we, we do have the freedom to act. Otherwise, we do have the freedom to act in a way that does contravene the will of Christ, the will of the master. And we see that with the wicked servant. I think it's a special temptation for, for leaders, certainly, um, given that they have... Uh, special positions of power and authority uh, over congregations, but it's something I think we all need to be wary of as well. It's a temptation for all of us. All of us have things that we have been given, that we've been blessed with, and we all have a choice to, to use those things for good or for ill. We're tasked with the responsibility of using what God has given us to nourish each other and to build up the body, of using what we have to bless and enrich each other. But how easy is it to go in the other direction and to use those things in a way that undermines the purposes of God? How simple it might be for someone, say, with a great deal of theological knowledge, to not build others up, but to to bully or to berate or to criticise or to tear people down because their theology may be faulty or or somewhat less sophisticated. How easy it might be for someone with a great gift in leadership perhaps to lord it over others and to possessively hold on to that position. As I said, in doing such things, and it's easy to do, I struggle with that sort of thing as well, 
We usurp the place of Christ and we put ourselves in that place. Deciding what we want according to our agenda and not his. So Jesus here presents us with some fundamental choices. We can commit ourselves daily to the purposes of his people, or his purposes, sorry, for his people, and obey him by serving each other. Or we can follow our own agenda. So it's here at this point that Jesus talks about, I guess, different types of failure. Failure to heed his call. Failure, sorry, to, uh, to live according to the purposes of the master. So we can actively, even calculatingly, decide to contravene the master's wishes. And it can be sometimes a very deliberate, conscious choice. The difference between true servanthood and the empty claims of someone who, whilst professing Christian faith, lives a life that represents its very opposite. That's what we're confronted with here. And that's why verse 46, if you'll see, Jesus actually says that the wicked servant will be assigned a place with the unbelievers. So the one who claims to follow Christ, the one who claims to be a servant of the master, and yet does not feed other servants with whatever they might have, or fails to obey the master's will, carries a mere shell of a faith, the kind of faith that is no different, in fact, to the unbelief of those who don't follow the master, those who don't follow Christ. It's stringent teaching, uh, and it's one that uh, does certainly confront us, I think, Because it's not just the servant who actively rejects the way of Christ here in this parable. If you look at verse 47, Jesus says that the one who, I guess in a passive sense, simply fails to do what the master does, who doesn't get ready, he too is liable. This is what he says. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. So I'm reminded of what Paul says in Ephesians 4.28. The one who steals should not only cease their thievery, but work, so that he may have something to share with those in need. So there Paul actually exhorts his readers, not just to refrain from what is wrong, but to commit themselves to what is right. And I think that's what Jesus here is pointing to, what he's urging people to do as well. Not just to refrain from open, deliberate sin, but to actually actively commit oneself to righteousness and to service before other believers. But in either case, whether we're talking about active sin or merely passive failure, I think the point is the same here. There's no place in God's community for a mere verbal profession of faith. I think that's something that Kieran actually touched on a couple of weeks ago. Verbal profession is not enough. And they mean nothing if they're not evidenced or substantiated by, uh, by da- a daily willingness to commit oneself practically to others, to serve one's fellow disciple. I think it's in this context, and we see this in verses 46 to 48, in this context, the importance of judgment is to be seen. 
<laughs> there are a few sort of hard teachings in this parable, actually. Um, and this one in particular, the idea of the master coming back to judge the servants, um, is not one that always, I guess, easily comports with our assumptions about Jesus. Uh, Jesus, meek and mild. It doesn't seem to, to really um, connect with what we see in this parable here. The idea of judgment being meted out to those who fail to follow the master's will. And it's something maybe that we ourselves, even as Christians, struggle with. The idea of a judging God. But we shouldn't think of God's judgment as some sort of inability to keep his cool. Some sort of inability to manage his own emotions. He doesn't mete out punishment because he's some sort of cosmic dictator who can't wait to punish uh, even the smallest infraction. Instead, he's the moral governor of the cosmos. He's the ground of all that is good and right and moral in this world. And it's only with the ultimate verdict, and we, we see that exhibited in, in, in this parable, it's only with the ultimate verdict, with the return of the master, that actions can finally be seen as either righteous or unrighteous, just or unjust. And I think this is particularly true within the community of faith, within the company of believers, that those who are called to exhibit the character of God may have their actions seen for what they are. It means, too, that we have a special responsibility. Those who have been given much will be demanded of much. But it's interesting too, if you look at what Jesus says there about punishment, particularly about the person, the servant, who does what is deserving of punishment but doesn't know his master's will. A lack of knowledge actually is, is, is grounds for, for mitigation. And that's what Jesus says here. Again, it does show us that God's not, God's not one who loses his He's not one who's struggling to keep a lid on his anger. He is the just judge who will judge correctly and truthfully. It is always according to what is true. It is always accompanied. It's always touched by mercy. It's a difficult teaching, I know. But we should also remember that for those of us who may struggle, who may fail, who may trip up, God is a God of forbearance. God is a God of patience. And as we come, as we repent, as we expose ourselves before him and give up those sins and those failures, he will heal, he will forgive, and he will purify and enable us to do what he has called us to do. It's about the value, the supreme value of pursuing righteousness. I think that too should be borne in mind as we think about the justice and the judgment of God. This threat of judgment shouldn't make us cower in fear, but should spur us on to do what is most important, which is to exhibit the character of God. To fulfil and to carry out the will of the Master. 
a lot of this jars, I guess, with current and contemporary constructions of religion and spirituality. And I want to sort of, I guess, sit side by side two images. And the first image we've already we've already looked at the idea of true servanthood, true Christian discipleship, the one that Jesus presents here in this parable. It's one that he uh, sums up in verse 48. From those who've been given much, much will be demanded. From those who've been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. That's the first image. The second image is what we see, I guess, prevailing today um, when it comes to religion and spirituality, to the idea of who God is and what he asks of us. About 10 years ago, a sociologist of religion, Christian Smith, uh, actually wrote about the religious lives of, of, um, of American teenagers. And what he wrote, I think, sums up well what we often see when it comes to um, uh, contemporary notions of spirituality. So what he found was, I guess, disturbing and illuminating at the same time. Um, and he described the de facto position of a lot of American um, religious teenagers, including Christians, those who called themselves Christians, um, as moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, it's a bit of a mouthful, and I, I, I realise that sociological terms and academic terms generally are a bit of a mouthful. But what he found was this. A lot of these teenagers he interviewed uh, saw God in very vague, nondescript terms. They believed that God wanted them to be good, again, in a very sort of vague, moralistic sense. They thought that he didn't normally intervene in the world's affairs, that he, he ordered the world in, in, in some sort of distant way but didn't usually get mixed up in it. The only reason he would get mixed up in the world was, to, uh, I guess, to, to help them solve their problems, uh, the problems that these, these, young, um, uh, these young religious Americans were experiencing. They also seemed to assume that the main goal in life was simply to be happy, to have a good, positive self-image, and that was something that God would help them uh, develop, uh, develop in themselves. But missing from their vocabulary um, were ideas and even terms that we see here in this parable, in this teaching of Christ's. Uh, terms around sin, related to judgment, terms uh, and, and concepts related to divine holiness and justice, things that we see Jesus teach teach on in this parable were missing from their, uh, from their vocabulary and from their, I guess, uh, from their beliefs, their religious beliefs. And what Christian Smith found, uh, this sociologist of religion, was that um, these, young, these young Americans didn't come to these uh, conclusions themselves. They'd simply imbibed them from the religious environments within which they lived. What he recognised was that uh, they simply um, reflected the churches they went to, they simply reflected uh, their families, and they were taught these things by the Christian leaders that they, uh, that they had over them. As I said, they were simply reflections of the wider theological and spiritual and religious environments in which they dwelt. And I think it does reflect... Um, our culture at a, at a fairly wide level too. But it's one, certainly, that jars with what we read here. And whatever truth is contained in what I've just described, and there is some truth there, 
It falls far short of what Jesus presents to us. There are two main differences, I think, that bear highlighting, actually. The first is this. True spirituality, the sort of spirituality that Jesus exhorts here, treats God as the ultimate end. What a sociologist of religion like Christian Smith discovered about the religious lives of many modern Christians, and not just adolescents, even though they were his subjects, but Christians generally. It's a far cry from what is said of the life of discipleship here. So modern conceptions of of Christian spirituality and spirituality generally tend to treat God or the divine or the transcendent, depending on how people might describe it, as a means to an end. And that end usually is one's own sense of peace or sense of comfort, one's sense of self-esteem even. By contrast, Jesus' parable and its teaching, particularly verse 48, upend that relationship. So God is not a cosmic butler there simply to, to satisfy every whim and every, uh, every want. He's the Lord of the cosmos and Christ is our master whose claim over our lives is total, comprehensive, He's not some kind of instrument that we use to get what we want. He's not even a means to some greater or more fundamental end because he himself is our ultimate end. The other main difference between what we see here and modern forms of spirituality is this. True spirituality is other-centred. So the therapeutic deism that, that Christian Smith described is sharply egotistical. It's all about self. By contrast, authentic Christian discipleship is radically other-centred. From those who have been given much, much will be demanded. And the wise and faithful servant is the one who uses what he or she has to feed other believers, to feed other servants. What we as Christians have been given, whether we're leaders or we're lay people, we hold in trust. We're not the ultimate owners of those things, as I said before. For again, we are stewards of what God has given us to do with as he wills. Paul's exhortation in Ephesians, I think, is again relevant here. We should labour and work so that in order that we may bless others with what we have. We can't claim possession over those things any more than we can claim that we have no responsibility to each other. Jesus' parable reminds us that God gives not merely for our own sakes, but for the sake of others in his estate. We are to serve God and to order our affairs around his will. Part of that ordering means the sharing of what we have with each other to nourish and feed each other metaphorically, spiritually, but sometimes also literally. His gifts enable us to serve, not merely to enjoy our own creature comforts. So at this point, some of you may be thinking, you know, that's fine, I want to do God's will, I want to do what he's called me to do. 
And that's not the issue. The issue may be that you think you don't have anything to give, to offer. The parable, the way it's presented, might suggest something that's too far away, something that's insurmountable. But I don't know if that's the case, actually. Um, Working with clients, I often encourage them to start small. And that's something that perhaps we can do as a congregation, as a church, is to start small. So we don't need to suddenly embark on great acts of, of moral or spiritual heroism. Small acts are signs that we are ordering our affairs around the purposes of the Master. So if perhaps you say hello to a new member of the church after, after the service, uh, and your usual practice is perhaps just to, to greet them briefly and to move on, maybe stop, get to know them, invite them over for lunch. If, you're, uh, if your usual response, say, if you read about the persecution of Christians going, going wider, um, is to simply shake your head in dismay and wonder what you can do about it, maybe search out an organisation that, that supports persecuted brothers and sisters and, and give to that organisation. And it doesn't have to be much either. If there's someone, say, in the church who's about to have a baby, maybe you could make a meal for them or purchase them something that will help them. See, in small ways, we can live out this parable. In small ways, we can actually use whatever we have for the benefit of each other. And you know what? Even if you think you don't have anything, you still have Christ. You still have the gospel. If you, if you are a member of God's house, then you have been lovingly brought into it according to his saving purposes, which means you have something to share with other Christians. You have Christ to share with them. Again, this could sound like a difficult teaching to some of you, but I want to just finish with three points, which hopefully will ease that burden if you're feeling it and encourage you as well. And the three points are grouped around three persons of the Trinity. Because we follow a triune God um, who is deeply involved in every part of our lives and is deeply involved not only in our salvation, but also as we progress along the road to discipleship. So true obedience is not performed begrudgingly. It's not performed in order to win our salvation. Father's love, for the Father has lovingly brought us into his estate. We serve because of that. We don't serve in order to win salvation because it has already been won for us as a result of the Father's great purposes. And so on that basis do we serve, on that basis do we give of ourselves. And even though this parable speaks of of God's judgment, the Master's judgment, We must remember that this is also the same God who has graciously brought us into his family in the first place, apart from, even despite, the things that we may have done. So whatever we do, we offer it up, not as some sort of transaction, but as a grateful act of worship in view of his mercy in sending his son.
And it's in this framework that our servanthood needs to be placed. It's in this context, lest we fall into the trap of thinking that we have to, we have to eke out lives of holiness under the, the exacting and watchful eye of a tyrant. For God, even though he lays claim to all things in our lives, is forbearing and patient and gracious. He's not asked us to do what he has not already done himself. So the Father has brought us in. He has also given us a model, the Son. This is something that bears repeating again and again. So earlier I said that this passage is related to the passage before it, the parable before it. And they both cover similar themes. Both speak about servants being vigilant whilst the master is away. But what verse 37, and it's not in your bulletins I realise, but what verse 37 in Luke 12 says is this. When the master returns, he will reward the faithful servants by waiting on them. He himself will adopt the posture of a servant and lay his life down for those under him. So Luke makes much of obedient devotion to God, but he's also keen to present Christ as the ultimate, as the ultimate servant, as the true servant. He has given us a pattern for us to follow and to mimic as we strive to live out our lives before him. He is the one who has adopted the posture, not even just of a servant, but of a slave. I'm reminded of John 13, you might know it, where Jesus does that very thing and washes the feet of his disciples to give them an embodied lesson in what it means to serve. And of course, he did that ultimately on the cross on our behalf. And finally, this is, of course, not something that we can do ourselves. I wouldn't want to, to leave you with that impression that through our own striving, through our own efforts, we can achieve what is being asked of us in this, in this passage. Now, at the start of the sermon, I, I spoke about Oscar Schindler and his transformation. But you could almost describe it as, as a kind of conversion. Now, it's quite clear in the film that he's not really a religious man. He doesn't, um, doesn't feel that he's got any need for religion. But his, his transformation throughout that film, from someone who was unscrupulous and selfish and self-absorbed to one who was willing to sacrifice everything, even his own liberty for others, suggests a kind of conversion. And that's what we experience, not just in one isolated moment, but day by day, as we yield ourselves to God's Spirit, we experience that conversion. And it's only through that conversion, only through that transformation that we can do what's asked of us. The other way lies legalism, self-righteousness and, and self-aggrandizement. This way lies true servanthood, as we recognise that it's only through God's power and God's Spirit, the conversion of mind and heart and will and life, that we can achieve this. It's the result, sorry, of the Spirit's power. We need that all-embracing change through His Spirit if we are to follow the pattern that He has set for us in order that we might exhibit true servanthood before Him and before each other.
Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for, uh, for graciously bringing us into your estate, into your house, and enabling us to serve you, Lord. Open our eyes to the opportunities that we have to serve each other, to feed and to nourish each other, whether with your word, through prayer, through encouragement, through daily acts of kindness and love, Lord, I pray, show us the way that we might reflect your goodness to each other and so reflect your goodness into this world. Amen.